Good morning and welcome to episode 34 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. Thank you so much for tuning in with me. Those of you who've written, I'm amazed at how many of you listen on your early morning drive to work. I like to listen to podcasts then, and in fact, one of my favorite podcasts, uh, Kevin um, over at uh, Beekeeper's Corner, he hasn't published in a long time, and it's really affecting my drive to work, Kevin. <laughs> I know he's busy from one of his previous podcasts. He talked about some a lot of projects he was working on with his bee club, so I know he's busy. But I sure do wish, um, if any of you know Kevin, tell him we are missing him. But anyway, thank you to those of you who write and say that you're enjoying the podcast. It makes my day every single time. And also, many of you give me these little tips or tidbits that you've heard or read or a source for something that I mentioned on the um, show that I didn't have a source for, and I just love it. In fact, today I just have this list of things that uh, people have written in and told me, um, and so today's going to be kind of a hodgepodge. First, let me tell you, we are finally getting some blessed rain here in the Blue Ridge. It had been so unusually dry, and that has some good aspects uh and then again, like I told you on the last time, it also required some feeding with my a lot of my little nukes and uh, baby hives to keep them growing. And a lot of our bigger hives went backwards in terms of their stores. So I've talked a lot about feeding last time. And then what's funny is in the time that has passed, um, we got a goldenrod flow. And all of a sudden, you could smell that just glorious stink out in the bee yard and they started adding weight so then on the tightrope of beekeeping (laughs) it became a concern to keep the little bees in the nuke boxes um the big hives they they had plenty of room i think but uh the little nucleus colonies and these are nucleus colonies that i hope to experiment with some overwintering in the bee barn Um, And that's just a teaser for an upcoming episode of this experiment that several of us are working on here in Yancey County. But um, so anyway, I have these nucleus colonies that I'm actually trying to keep fairly small. If they were going to overwinter outside here, I would be furiously trying to grow them bigger because through some uh, experiments that I classify as landing party experiments. (laughs) If you remember from the old Star Trek, the folks in the red shirts that went down with the landing party and they hardly ever came back. So some of the experiments are landing party. But um, anyway, that sad truth (laughs) has led me to know that to overwinter successfully here at 3,000 feet in the Blue Ridge, I basically need my bees to be covering a good 16 medium frames and with some good weight on them and that size reliably can uh, live outside for the winter. I do have to keep an eye on their um, stores in late winter but I've had good luck with that size but as you can imagine with that that's a that's a fairly chunky little hive and um, for this project that that I want to work on which is I'll call it the bee independence project that is figuring out a protocol if you will where we in our bee club in our county and region could be self-sufficient in having bees in the spring and lessening 
the number of bees coming in from outside in the form of packages and nukes from places that are not here. And so to that end, like most people with, uh, you know, with real winters, we can't really compete um, in the spring in terms of having nukes and packages ready at that time. But if we learn to overwinter nucleus colonies, you can have overwintered nukes ready for early spring, which are actually even more valuable than um, a fresh nuke because that's a proven queen. She's made it through the winter and she's uh, laid and um, anyway has kind of a track record. So that's what I'm working on with the bee barn is figuring out a way to um, overwinter smaller nucleus colonies so that they could uh, all fit in there and of course have entrances to the outside and the barn around them being just to moderate like not to heat the barn but to moderate the temperature because what we're dealing with here are ups and downs um, I think I've said before that you know Vermont Vermont uh, beekeepers have chuckled at us here in North Carolina in the mountains about you know why on earth would you need to insulate your hives you know we get through with uh, without insulation up in Vermont but you it, you need a big hive to get through um, any significant winter without insulation and so see I'm wandering already I actually have notes but I'm just wandering all over the place but anyway so insulation is something I'm going to talk about in an upcoming episode the bee barn experiment is something I'm going to talk about the other uh, reason which is also kind of an excuse as to why I haven't made a podcast I happen to get a hold of through a uh, really uh, lovely conversation with someone online some private recordings of uh, um, presentations at a recent large international um, bee conference and I'm saying it kind of like that because while the speakers did give permission for these recordings I'm sure that the conference probably did not so I'm not gonna um, publicize all that because I I want them to stay up on YouTube long enough for me to study on them <laughs> but if you are a true geekazoid and you would like to listen to some of these the sound quality is not great but um, you are very welcome to contact me even on the fa on the Facebook page Five Apple Farm Bees Honey and More or to email me at blueridge714 at gmail if you are the type of geek like me who will take the time to strain and put on headphones to listen to a bootleg recording of a fascinating presentation. But what all that has led me down the rabbit hole that I've been in and that I hope to uh, make some shows for you coming up on the various, uh, actually some of you have written in and asked me to, to do this and then I started getting inter interested in the following topic. So that's going to end up being a show one day. And that is the various traits of uh, both VSH traits, uh, varroa sensitive hygiene traits in bees, and also SMR traits, which is what VSH was originally called. And that's um, suppressed mite reproduction traits. And on that, one of the techniques that they use, and this is how I ended up going down the rabbit hole, one of the traits in um, suppressed mite reproduction is a capping and or uncapping and recapping behavior. And so instead of with the VSH, when the nurse bees, the super sensitive nurse bees sense 
you know, mites breeding under those cappings, they yank off the capping and also yank out that brood. And so you can see where that's good up to a point, but if they are too sensitive and just yank out everybody, uh, then you can have a problem with building up a colony size. And actually this has been an issue with the, the true uh, strong VSH uh, tendencies. They can have that, that tendency in itself is, can kind of be a problem. If, if it's too strong, what you want is a little bit, <laughs> but not too much. Um, but this cappy, uncapping and recapping is pretty fascinating because um, what it is, is the uh, taking that cap off of the brood changes. I don't know whether it's the humidity or the oxygen uh, in that uh, formerly capped brood. And it messes with the mite's ability to reproduce in there. And so the brood stays in there so you don't have quite you know you don't have that loss of brood but the mites are set back so this is a very interesting trait and as you all know um, to best deal with the mites the bees need a bunch of different traits and there's no one silver bullet and it just you know in some ways we all have to just get that out of our mind like there's just you know the Calvary's coming there's going to be this one silver bullet that's going to fix this whole problem whether that's a a genetic silver bullet or a or a chemical treatment silver bullet is it's just not there and um and actually with biological systems in my experience in my study there's never a silver bullet it's always uh, just things that work to help to reestablish the balance either you know but in this case between a parasite and its and its host so how this happened, let me just tell you. <laughs> so I've noticed something in my colonies and some uh, another person's colonies that I was looking at. In colonies with very low mite counts, I would see some uh, open brood that had been uncapped. Now, so this, you know, is what I was taught as bald brood, um, bald, B-A-L-D brood. And th that's when you look in there on a capped brood frame and all of a sudden you see these little, uh, you know, purple eye or still white eye um, brood staring back at you and as you know that's not really a, um, a normal situation so it's possible that if you're seeing those open brood then they're about to express their VSH trait and pull those larvae out but I started noticing a difference between the edge of the cell of the ones that they're obviously uh, pulling out or chewing down as the case may be to get them out um, which is not good because all that's sign that you're you're deep into um, mite and virus associated damage and um, but then I noticed this other kind of ball brood that had a very neat edge and and it was a little bit elevated and so I began to think that this might be the capping and uncap uncapping capping um, behavior and it might be a, a sign that we could look at from the outside because the research that I had read was the only way to really pinpoint this um, suppressed mite reproduction uh, trait in, in terms of the uncapping capping was to actually count the reproductive mites in the cell which requires a microscope and um, in any way that's not something I have time to do so I thought how neat it would be if there was a signal 
that you could see this behavior and this little ring around the edge of the cell just something <laughs> some gut thing said hey I wonder if this is it so I wrote to a person who's kind of working on this a researcher and they said no that's not it um, that that's not what they're looking for and the signal that they're looking for so this started a deep dive into is anybody has anybody found a way to visually identify without a microscope that if that a hive has a colony has this uh, behavior I have found a research article which um, I'm eventually gonna uh, share pictures and everything where if you take the cappings off uh, in the research setting that you can tell if that cell has been uncapped and recapped which you could do that with uh, a magnifier which is one so we're one step better than a um, microscope but you know they don't uncap and recap that many cells hopefully because you hopefully you don't have that many reproducing mites in there if you have uh, taken care of your bees so so anyway anyway this is uh, what I'm working on I'm working on actually doing the research and I am trying to understand it all enough to talk about it and then just be warned those of you who hate it when I read articles <laughs> um, that I'm going to read you some of these research articles but I'm going to put them in individual episodes so uh, the talking can be one thing and the research articles can be a different thing for those of you with long drives in the dark in the morning I don't want to put you back to sleep anyway that is what I've been working on so that was kind of a long drawn-out teaser for that but I want to talk about a few um, tips and tricks that people have actually written in and told me about one uh, Jeff was telling me about Jeff in North Carolina and uh, we were having a conversation about alcohol wash for mite counts let me just pause here and say uh, counting mites I have a lot of people um, say to me or I see said online people say I don't count mites because I am uh, not using chemical treatments so I'm not gonna quote-unquote do anything about it anyway so why would I count mites and I will confess that in early years since I was working and am still working in completely chemical free uh, techniques that I had that attitude too. I was like, you know, there's just no need for me to go to that extra trouble to know exactly how many um, mites I have going on because the proof in the pudding is winter survival. Now, I've always been very, very careful to not let hives collapse um, or even because I am a little OCD or even show significant signs of uh, mite pressure of any kind in the flying season because when the bees are flying if you have a mite that I mean if a colony that is going downhill and becoming weak then it is prone to robbing which is the way one of the ways one of the worst ways that mites are spread because you can have a good healthy little colony and then they go and beat up and rob out a colony that is ill with high mite load and all those mites, they know, they jump on those robbers and go back to your formerly healthy hive. And that is a problem. And that's what people call mite bombs. And um, I mean, there's just a lot of back and forth about that. But anyway, I take that very seriously, even though I don't have any beekeepers within normal flight range of my bees. What I do hope I have out there are uh, wild feral, feral I should say, colonies out in the forests 
and they are really my gold standard of care for my bees because I don't want anything that I do in my yard. I take it as a great privilege and responsibility to be keeping bees in an isolated area. And the last possible thing I want to do is create any additional mite pressure on whatever wild populations are out there working out their ways um, to balance out with the mites and be able to survive. So that is my um, soapbox on the reason why I am OCD on never letting a hive uh, go downhill while the bees are flying. Now in the winter I have been more laissez-faire because if a hive uh, dies from mite associated things in the winter when nobody's flying then it's just only that hive that has paid the price uh, for that so I thought okay well you know this is where this is how I know who my best colonies are um, the ones that I want to reproduce from next year and that mentally worked for me and actually worked for me in uh, real life for some time but this year I will say that between a friend of mine who's a statistician and um, and our area beekeeper, I have gone over to counting mites in particular, like not just looking for signs of damage, um, but counting them. Because part of it is, I mean, part of it is I, I want to have the data to show when my bees are doing well. As you can imagine, a lot of people doubt that. Um, I just watched a video on YouTube, uh, I, I enjoy some of the techniques, um, not not the uh, treating. Well, actually, <laughs> okay, I watch the Barnyard Bee channel on YouTube because they do a ton of nukes. Now, it's not my um, what would you say? It's not my thing in terms of. I mean, they you know they're all about selling nukes, and um, they get packages and divide them up and make nukes. And that's cool, uh, you know, but when you're buying nukes, you should know uh, if you aspire to, oh, well, I won't get into that. But anyway, um, so I watch their channel and I, I enjoy it. They have a lot of cool ways to work with little mating nukes and ways to uh, build the boxes and um, s some things that I can learn from, even though we use a totally different management technique. But anyway, there was one recently on their channel where it, the guy was very sincerely just saying, look, people, if you are not going to treat your bees for mites, if you're not going to use chemical treatments, um, you're going to lose your bees. And it was very sincere. It was not, he, he, you know, he's not selling chemicals or he was, you know, but in his experience, this is the only way to keep your bees alive. And I will say, in my experience, you know, managing the mites in one way or another, in my experience at least, is the only way to keep your bees alive. Now, this fella, to his credit, was saying, you know, why on earth would you not use some of the organic uh, treatments that are non-residual? And I tend to agree uh, in the sense that if you are not working on bee reproduction, if you are not actively making more colonies in your yard and selecting for better and better bees in your yard, then in my opinion, um, it is only ethical to do some type of uh, management that keeps your yard from being this just giant disease and mite reservoir in your neighborhood. And that's, uh, 
Well, that's a whole nother topic. Anyway, so that was a very long approach to um, that I that I have started doing actual mic counts as a way to get the the hard cold data <laughs> of how the mites are doing in terms of keeping their the bees are doing in terms of keeping their mite numbers extremely low. Which brings me to alcohol washes. Um, I have been using alcohol washes. I, it is a uh, you know it's lethal to the bees that get washed. Uh, I will say. I visualized it very carefully and it is quick, it is fast, uh, but it's also, it's one of the most accurate counts because even with a sugar shake, I mean, you have to shake those bees, you have to shake the heck out of those bees. And so there's some question as to their long-term survival anyway, but they go through a lot of trauma to my eye in all the shaking. So for me personally, and this is, uh, I just thought, you know, if I'm going to do this thing, these bees, uh, they're going to take one for the team and to give these accurate mic counts. Anyway, that's how I came to use an alcohol wash. But I will admit, while I was doing the alcohol washes, I was quite nervous and quite careful. Quite, If I had not been able to locate the queen and set her safely aside on a frame, then I was a little neurotic. And when I was shaking those bees off into a white pan, I looked and looked and looked and looked to make sure I hoped that I wasn't getting the queen. And um, and I don't think I did because I, I looked at my alcohol wash afterwards just to make sure that I hadn't done the bad thing. But so Jeff wrote in and said that he had been worried about the same thing and that so he was going to use something I had talked about on an earlier podcast, uh, the, the, the Doolittle box. And this is where you use a queen excluder to make sure that you're not getting your queen. And so this is a split technique that um, works like a charm. And I'll talk more about that next year when we get back into the split season or I don't know, this winter when I'm bored. But um, so basically what you do is you take several open brood frames out of your hive. You shake the bees off back in the hive. So if the queen was on them, she's now safely, you shake carefully and you get her back in the hive if she was in there. And then you put a queen excluder over the top of the hive and you put a box on and you put those now naked brood frames up there. Well, if you have a well-populated hive within a several hours or definitely overnight, the nurse bees are going to run back up there through the queen excluder and get back on those frames because that's their job. And so what that means is you now have frames in the classic do little box uh, to make splits with that you know the queen's not on and are populated by young nurse bees. But in this case, you have frames of open brood populated, you know, covered by young nurse bees. And those, bless their hearts, are the landing party for the alcohol wash. And that way he could shake off the half cup of bees um, and get them and know for sure that he wasn't getting his queen. And I thought this was pretty brilliant, Jeff. And so I told you I was going to tell everybody about that. Because if, you, if you're if you thinking about doing alcohol wash, but the thought, or, or, or sugar shake, uh, but the thought of um, accidentally uh, killing your queen is too frightening, then this is a way, if you want to get those numbers, um, to do it. If you do alcohol wash or sugar shake and you have a really high mite load, in my opinion, you have nothing to lose by using one of the um, organic treatments. It, uh, of course, you know, it's time sensitive, it's area, because you may or may not still have that window of opportunity. But basically, going into winter with that high mite load, they're very unlikely to survive. And 
that hive, that colony is such a resource to you, even if they have a high mite load, if you can possibly help them and use, use an organic um, treatment to knock down that mite load, um, and any knockdown is better than no knockdown at all, um, then you, hopefully you have a higher chance of coming out in the spring with live bees. Now, if this is the case, that queen you know, in my opinion, is just slated to go to glory because um, you her genetics obviously are not working um, for your setting. They are they are not managing their mites. But if you can get a live colony through to the spring, then you have the opportunity to buy a queen from a breeder that's working on VSH traits or mite resistance traits and requeen them and suddenly you with that one bee paying the price the queen you have just changed the genetics in that entire colony whereas if you go with what uh, some people publicize you know just let them die because they don't have good genetics anyway well if you let them die then you're gonna have to get more bees in the spring guess what uh, getting good quality Packages is almost impossible and nukes is just hard. Um, so you're going to have a dead hive and then you're going to start with bad bees in the spring again. I mean, you shouldn't say bad, but just lower quality in terms of handling their mites. So to my um, frugal eye, <laughs> it, might, it just makes sense to do the best you can to get whatever bees you have through the winter by whatever means necessary that you can stomach. And that way, in the spring, you have the chance to, you know, for 35 to 40 bucks a queen to totally change the genetics in that hive and get started down the road to having a colony, a hive strong enough to either uh, need dramatically less treatments or potentially no chem no chemical intervention at all. Um, I just want to say that... Uh, I've gotten several comments about, uh, well, I don't know. I don't know how to uh, start this out, but, but here's the answer <laughs> to the question I can't remember. But you will see a huge difference. If you've been having trouble with mites and diseases in your colonies, if you buy queens from a reputable top-notch uh, VSH uh, source, and the one that I do know, VP Queens, out of South Carolina. Now they only sell artificially inseminated uh, queens, so you don't want to do that unless you're way into this. But on their website of VP Queens, they have a list of uh, queen rearers who use their artificially inseminated stock to uh, to make production queens, but still but still have that stronger trait of the VSH and. I have heard other uh, queen rears that, that I'm in communication with talk about that in their yards, everything turned around in terms of health when they began to get these, these strong VSH uh, queens. So it's not perfect, and it still requires, um, in my opinion, uh, monitoring and care. There is no such thing, to my personal experience, of a completely, fully treatment-free bee that is attached to a beekeeper. <laughs> there are fully treatment-free bees out in the forest, and we don't want to we don't want to set them back. And so, 
um, that's one of the reasons why um, why I talk about what I do about about being ethical and responsible in um, any you know in, in not being an additional burden to what wild bees or your neighbor's bees are having to deal with so wow that soapbox went long I'm so sorry about that um, about your bees check the feed on your bees at that time of the year uh, probably in most all places places you know just check the stores keep an eye on their weight you've got to run that tight wire between getting them um, making sure they have enough stores to get through the coming winter and at the same time not getting them so packed out with nectar that they don't that the queen doesn't have room to lay so I talked about that last time and I'm going to draw it to a close here I, I think I got two of the notes out of about eight that I had intended to talk to you today but maybe that'll just mean that I'm ready for another podcast more quickly than this one happened thank you all for being geeky enough beekeepers that you listen to beekeeping podcasts I can't tell you how much that thrills me to find out there are so many of us out there Um, and I'm cheering you on in whatever stage you are in your beekeeping journey please keep the comments coming and the tips and the links and everything uh, on Facebook it's five apple farm bees honey and more and then my email is blueridge714 at gmail.com have a great week and I'll talk to you soon